Welcome to the Impact Church Podcast, and thank you so much for joining us as we seek to establish Christ followers who live in obedience to God's Word and make an impact in their community and the world through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today, Pastor Brad continues in his sermon series on the book of Revelation as he speaks from Revelation 12 and 13 about the spiritual battle we face against the enemy who's trying to take us out and how we can overcome and defeat him. Are you ready to make an impact for Christ? The time is now. Victory in Jesus. Welcome to church this morning. How's everybody doing? All right. So now, Revelation series. Here we go. What we came for. All right. So we're going to keep diving in, moving through. Some people have asked me um, energetically and some kind of begrudgingly, how much longer is Revelation? And some of us like, how much longer is Revelation? I mean, we've been in it since September, right? So, I mean, it's a significant amount of time. I'm going to be honest. We could be in Revelation for three years if we wanted to, all right? I mean, there's just so much in here, but we're not. Don't worry, okay? We're not. Not saying that because I don't want to make this a theology class, all right? Sunday morning is not a theology class. We're going to learn. We're going to get context, application. But what I do want to do is always give application. So every single week, you're going to have application through God's word, even in Revelation. I hope you saw that last week. Last week was a message that you could extract and just preach anywhere, all right? It it stands alone. It doesn't have to be a part of it. So that's what we're going to get today and what I commit to as the Lord leads every single week through the end. But this last half of the book is not going to take as long as the first half of the book did, okay? So getting through this last portion, I need at least six weeks, maybe seven, okay? So we have about six to seven more weeks to complete it. And then, of course, there'll be a standalone message for Easter, because I'm not sure how I can fit, you know, Easter into, anyway. (laughs) All right. So that means by the end of April, Revelation will be complete. Some will be like, oh, some will be cheering. Okay. So uh, that's where we are. If you're wondering where we are. And then we'll move into another series soon after um, that I'll allude to as we go on. But let's get rocking. So today, we're going to kind of wrap up the very end of chapter 11 that we left off last week, and then we're going to go through chapter 12 today. And this message is part of really a two-part series, um, a mini-series within the series, if you want to say, that's called The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, all right? The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, because we're going to learn about some characters, okay? I mean, some weird characters, I mean, we're going to see some cats that got like seven heads and ten horns and crowns and all this kind of stuff. And you'd be like, what? What is that? It's like sci-fi. It's really not. It's pointing to imagery that is calculated and pointed to in the Bible. And and again, it is reading Revelation and prophecy of Old Testament is like getting tomorrow's newspaper today. All right? That's the beautiful part of this. So we're going to learn something today and we're going to have application as well. So the good, the bad, and the ugly, part one, all right? If any of you have uh, ever been around uh, sports, maybe you coached ball teams, maybe you were a parent like on a baseball field, you're familiar with a scorebook, right? And I think we got a picture we can throw up on the screen over there. And on a, a scorebook for baseball, it lays open so that you have two sides. You have one team on one side and one team on the other. And there's a list where you can put the name of each player and their number, their position, and then you can track what happens as the game goes on. Well, guys, today in Revelations 12 and 13, what we're going to get is a scorebook. We're going to get the players on each side and what happens as the game goes on, especially as we move through this chapter through chapter 22. We're going to get what happens. So I hope you're excited about that and bring some anticipation to knowing what God is doing and what's going on and who are the major players. And we're going to describe that and we're going to look at that and we're going to go back to the Bible to interpret that. So we're not just pulling straws out of a hat and guessing, well, I think it's this. Well, I think it's this. No, the Bible tells us who it is. Okay? The Bible tells us who all these people are and what is, what is this imagery that's going on. So we're going to see all that. Ultimately, we're going to see definitively who the opposing team is. We're going to get who the, 
who the good side is, we're going to have reference to Jesus. We've already seen him a lot. This is his revelation anyway. But we're going to get reference here to Israel, the Jews. We're going to get reference to the the 144,000, especially as we get into the beginning of chapter 14. We're going to have reference even to converted Gentiles, the seed of the woman that that the enemy turns on. But we're really going to get the opposing team. We're going to see the Antichrist and who he is in this this revived Roman Empire, one world government that arises, that changes everything with his, with his homeboy, the false prophet, right? Coming along with him to complete his task. And what we're gonna see though is all this, this whole opposing team is fused by this one major player, the MVP, if you will, of the opposing team, and his name is Satan. His name is actually Lucifer. We refer to him most times as Satan. He's the enemy, And we're going to see that he's powerful, that he's deceitful, that he's wicked, and he's very good at playing behind the scenes, guys. He's very good at that. And we're going to see how he manipulates and uses people to complete his task. But then ultimately, our application will be this. After we learn all that, we're going to learn and see how we beat him how we overcome him. The name of this whole series is the overcomers. So we're going to see application today, how we can be overcomers in Christ over the enemy that wants to take you and I out. The thief that comes to steal, kill, and destroy. The one who prowls around like a lion looking who he may devour. We can beat him and defeat him through the blood of the lamb, the word of our testimony, if we will deny ourselves and not love our lives even to the death. Let me pray for us before we dive in. Dear Lord, we love you. Father, we thank you for Jesus. And Lord, I'm excited today to be in your house, Lord, to speak your word, Father. Lord, because I know your word changes lives. Lord, I thank you, Father, for who you are, Lord, and how you reveal yourself to us through your word. You reveal your redemptive plan for the world and for all humanity. And you tell us, What's going to happen so that we won't be discouraged when we feel like we're losing the battle? Because the victory's already won. Lord, you've already knocked the ball over the fence. All you need is for us to run the bases. The victory is won. Lord, I pray that we would see and hear that today. And Lord, that we would have application to our lives, that it would change us, that it would motivate us and move us into a closer walk and relationship with you as we walk out and live out our testimony. Lord, by which we overcome the enemy. So, Father, I pray through you, Father, that your spirit would fall on this place, that you would speak to hearts and minds, and, Lord, that we would all be changed and leave here closer with you. Lord, I pray that you would come and do what only you can do, and you get the victory, you get the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Here we go. So if you have a copy of God's word, you can turn to the book of Revelation Chapter 11, we're going to pick up these last few verses in chapter 11 that we left off last week in verses 15 through 19. Verses 15 through 19. And what we're going to see here, and then we've already alluded to this as we went through chapter 10 and talked about the little book that the angel had that John was commanded to eat. And we talked about how we're at the midpoint of the tribulation. And we proved that with Daniel chapter 12. Remember how we went through all that? And we talked about how the seventh trumpet, when it goes off, is starting the second half of the tribulation. Okay, so we're going to see that here again as well. So this is really a pivot point. And this is important that we understand this because it is key to understanding the book of Revelation and where we're at. So it all makes sense, especially the rest of what's going to unfold. So this is a a momentum swing we're going to see, if you will. Anybody that's ever played sports or you watch sports, you watch football, you know that there's something called an intangible thing called momentum. And you can feel it shift in the course of a game where something happens, a fumble, an interception, a big play, a big hit, whatever. There is actually a bird flying around the sanctuary. All right. That's cool. All right. So I was like, what is that? So it is, we know about momentum and gaining that momentum in a game, 
And we're going to see a momentum shift and swing because what we know and understand is since the depravity, the fall of man in Adam and Eve, Satan has run his course with humanity and mankind. And we talked about that once we get to this point, this seventh trumpet, that this little book that that Daniel saw in the angel's hand was actually the uh, eviction summons, if you will, all right? That this process was going to start of evicting Satan and getting him out. Okay, so that's where we're at, and that's where this momentum shift is. Think about it. When Satan tempted Jesus, remember what he said at one point? He says, if you'll bow down to me, I'll give you all this, all these kingdoms. You remember that? Remember, and Jesus didn't say, oh, man, what are you talking about? You didn't create all that, I did. You're talking about that ain't yours? He didn't say that, did he? He had actually given that over to the enemy. So Satan's been renting this place we call earth for a long time, here's the momentum change. It's about to get kicked out, all right? So, time's up. So we're gonna see this seventh trumpet. Let's read it, verses 15 through 19, as I told, told you all that to allude so you can have some understanding. It says, then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord, God Almighty, the one who is and who was and is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come, and the time of the dead that they should be judged." And that you should reward your servants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. And there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, and earthquake, and great hail. All right. So let's dig this out so we can gain some understanding. Some may read that and be like, ho, ho, ho. You said the seventh trumpet started the second half of the tribulation. But what I just read, Brad, was that we're at the point how now we're judging the dead and Christ has reigned and his wrath has come. I, I thought we were at the end right here. We're not. Remember, when the judgment's made in the courthouse, is done. All right? The eviction process, the eviction summons is signed and given out. But then there's a process to remove the tenant, especially if they throw a fit, which is what we're going to see what Satan does. So what we're seeing is it's finished, and we're going to see that because I want you to notice something. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 10, verse 7, that we went through a couple weeks ago. And I'm going to read this out of the, um, out of the ESV because it reads a, a little smoother to give us some understanding on this. And it says this, it says, but that in the days, with an S, circle that word days, or that whole phrase, in the days, of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled as he announced to his servants, the prophets. If you remember a couple weeks ago, if you were here, we talked about how that trumpet is not just a one blow and done kind of deal. It's not a, remember I did that and made a fool of myself, it's a, All right, it's a long process. It's a process of days, okay? And we're going to see that here definitively. We see it right here in what we read. So how do we know this? Because what we're going to see is this actually, this seventh trumpet lasts until the mystery of God is fulfilled. What's the mystery of God? What did we say that was? God's redemption plan. Okay, that's the mystery. You can look at that Romans 6, 25 through 26, Ephesians 6, 19, Colossians 2, verse 2. All right, that this mystery of God is the total redemption plan. That is the, not just the process of Christ coming, dying, resurrecting, that started it, but it's the completion of it, of his return, of his eviction of Satan and all of evil, right? Thrown into the lake of fire, that completes it. Does that make sense? So therefore, this is this holy eviction process of the seventh trumpet, okay? All right, so the end of the seventh trumpet, if you will, in those days, the end will be the end of the redemption process where the mystery is fulfilled. That will be where the dead are judged, the righteous are rewarded, Satan thrown into the lake of fire. 
okay? And therefore, it's all finished. So the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of God, this eviction process. We saw that again definitively, not only in Revelation 10 with that little book, but corroborated in Daniel chapter 12, okay? Something um, kind of important to look at here, if you have the King James or the New King James, which is what we just read out of, here in verse 17, it has a phrase that says, the one who is and who was and who is to come. And if you read your Bible a lot, you know that that's said a lot throughout Scripture, okay? But what's um, pretty definitively different here, if you have a different version, it leaves out the ending of who is to come, all right? And I didn't have time to, or the means to go back and, and look at this, but supposedly in the original manuscript, that was actually left out. For some reason, when they translated the King James, they added it back in just because they thought it was supposed to be there, okay? That's kind of scary. But actually, the, suppose the, the original manuscript said who is and who was. Why would it leave out who is to come? Because he's back. The eviction process is back. He hasn't come back yet. Don't get that wrong. He hasn't put his feet on the Mount of Olives yet, but it's done. Again, the summons has been signed. It's time to evict the enemy. The time is here. The little book of Jan Daniel chapter 12 is now opened in Revelation 10. Does that make sense? It's come, all right? So giving more um, clarity into that. Let's keep going. We see in verse 18 that we know we're, that there's some things that happen definitively in the second half of the tribulation. What are those? In verse 18, it lays kind of five things out, if you will. The nations were angry. Well, when have the nations been angry prior to this? They haven't. Again, it's referring after at the end, looking back. Now the nations are going to become angry. They're going to gather together at that Battle of Armageddon, right, where it's not really a war, where Christ defeats all the nations that come in anger against him. So it's actually referring to the end. You got that? Is that clear? That hasn't happened yet. It's referring about what's about to happen through this whole eviction process. The nations were angry. Your wrath has come. Well, it ain't come yet. Those are the vials. You see that? It's about to come. So we're talking about this whole eviction process. And the time of the dead, you want more confirmation? And the time of the dead that they should be judged. When does the dead be judged? When are they judged? When is the judgment? At the end of the millennium, at the great wine throne judgment, okay? We're gonna get there in Revelation chapter 20. So again, this seventh trumpet goes through the last three and a half years and of course, and encompasses the end of through the millennium because that's when the final redemption process is completed and Satan himself is thrown into the lake of fire and the dead are judged at the great white throne judgment. Does that make sense? You see where we're at? This will give you clarity so you don't get confused and it'll make Revelation make sense, all right? Then also the other things, that you should reward your servants and the prophets and the saints so the righteous will be rewarded. And you should destroy those who destroy the earth, all cast into the lake of fire, all right? That's at the end of the millennial period. All right, so moving on, we see verse 19 in chapter 11, and this is important. Some may read that and be like, ah, that don't mean anything. Let's move on. No, it does. Remember, God does not waste words in his word. He doesn't. They all have meaning, and they all point to something. So we're going to see, then the temple of God was opened in heaven. The ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. And you'd be like, what does that mean? Well, this is important. If you think back to the ark of the covenant in the temple that was on earth, all right? And first of all, this temple was fashioned in the exact replica of what's in heaven, all right? We see that in Hebrews, how, how it was brought that way and was done perfectly. And he even gave those um, specifications that they should build it in a replica of heaven. But what was the Ark of the Covenant? It was the place inside the Holy of Holies where nobody could enter except one person on one day of the year. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest and the high priest only get this, this is important, could go into the Holy of Holies and he had to be ceremonially clean or he would die. Sometimes they would tie a rope to him in case they weren't right. If they didn't come back out in a while, I'd be like pulling dude out because he didn't get it. You know what I'm saying? We got to get a new high priest. 
brother didn't make it. All right, so it's important. That's how, that's how significant it is to be in the presence of God, all right? So he goes in, and his job was to go to the Ark of the Covenant, which was covered in what was called the judgment seat. And he was to sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on that and turn the judgment seat of God over the Ark of the Covenant into the mercy seat for forgiveness. So what's the significance of this? Now God's redemptive plan is about to happen. His wrath is about to come. Eviction process of the enemy. So he opens up so everybody can see the temple. The temple hadn't come down to earth yet. All right, Jerusalem hadn't come down. That's not where we're at. That's different. That's later in Revelation. This is the temple's open. The ark is exposed. Why? The judgment seat of Christ. The judgment's here. And the only ones who will make it and come out are that who have the blood of Christ sprinkled upon that ark, right? They have the mercy seat instead of the judgment seat. But the judgment seat's open now for God's redemptive plan to take place, okay? All right. Clear as mud, right? Let's roll. Now let's move in to Revelation chapter 12. Now that we know where we're at here at this point in the tribulation, and Bible has corroborated that. Revelation chapter 12, we're going to start reading verses 1 through 6, and we're going to start to get some of these characters listed that we talked about that we're going to put on our, our, in our scorebook, all right? And we're going to see a dragon who will definitively be referred to as Satan in this passage. We're going to see reference to Jesus. We're going to see reference to Israel the Jews, the 144,000. We're going to, as we get into chapter 13, which is next week, we're going to see the Antichrist and his false prophet. And then especially in the beginning of 14, next week as well, we'll see the a definitive look at the 144,000 Jews, their servants. All right? So what we need to know and what you should understand already from reading the Bible and just knowing a little bit about God's word is where the Jews, have they always been persecuted? Yeah, big time, in many facets, in many ways. Their life hasn't been easy, okay? That they've always been persecuted, all right? Sometimes because of their sin, their own shortcomings, and God used other nations of their enemies to come and, and kind of set them straight, but sometimes just because of who they are and who they represent. So we're gonna see that that actually intensifies here in the last half of the tribulation. So let's dive in, chapter 12, one through six. Let's read it first. It says, now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head, a garland of 12 stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and 10 horns and, a, and seven diadems on his head. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth, to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child, capital C. Who would that be? It's Jesus. We're definitely talking about Jesus here. Male child, capital C. No way to misinterpret that. Who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and his throne. There you go. All right. Verse 6, then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. All right, this is important to understand. What we're getting here in verses 1 through 5 is a history lesson, okay? John's giving us a history lesson first, and then starting in verse 6, he's transitioning, okay, now that you're caught up and you understand that, now this is where we are or where we're going to be in the tribulation, but you see what I'm saying, okay, in terms of revelation. So that's a key to understand, but let's first look at these players that we have on our score, in our scorebook. So first we have the woman, and it says the woman is clothed, all right, with the sun, moon under her feet, and on her head is a garland of 12 stars. What does that mean? I mean, first, we, when you read this passage and you know definitively it's talking about Jesus and you hear about a woman giving birth, automatically, if you don't dig deep, you think, who is this? Mary. This is not Mary, okay? It's not who we're talking about. And we definitively see that because of what the Bible says and how it's run to the wilderness and fed for 1,260 days. Mary never had to do that, 
okay? All right, we're definitively here in the middle of the tribulation. We're looking at Israel. We're gonna see that. Let's prove that. This imagery of the sun, moon, and the stars is taken from Joseph's dream in Genesis chapter 37, okay? Where his dream was the sun, moon, and the stars, and it was referenced to, and even Jacob knew that when he told him the dream, that the sun was Jacob, the moon was Jacob's wife, Rachel, the stars were their children, okay? And these children would become the patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel, all right? So we know Jacob's name was later changed to Israel, So all this imagery is pointing to who? Israel. Got it? So we can definitively say through God's word that the woman is Israel. Jews, who we're pointing to, all right? It's important. So there's your first player you can mark down, all right? Now let's look at the child. Obviously we know we're talking about Jesus, but it says that, that the woman was in labor. And think about that. In verse 2, and it says, being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. Well, we know that Jesus came from Israel. Even Jesus said that in John chapter 4, verse 22, the salvation comes from the Jews, okay? So the Jews gave birth to Christ, the Messiah. You see that imagery? So what was the strain? What was the labor pain of Israel? Well, what we talked about, the persecution. Ultimately, Satan knew through God's uh, revelation in his word, because Satan knows God's word, that the Messiah was to come from the Jews. He knew that. That's probably one of the reasons he had Cain slay Abel. He saw that that God preferred Abel's sacrifice. Like, oh, that's got to be it. That's that seed you're talking about that's going to come crush my head. I'm going to crush him first. So working through the depravity of man, the first murder took place. Him thinking, hey, I'm taking out the the seed, right, To, to stop this redemptive process of the Messiah. But little did he know, he was way far off, okay? So, and even all through history, the the persecution that he led many armies and people to do to come against the Jews and the process they had to get to the promised land and to become a great nation and all that, it was a strain, it was laborsome, all right? And it was filled with hardship. So, Satan tried to thwart the plan. We're gonna see that even more as we keep reading here, all right? So we saw in In verse 3, another sign appeared, and there was this fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. You're like, man, what? That's crazy stuff. And if you just read that, you'd be like, man, what's that? We talking about a dragon? Dragons ain't even real, are they? I mean, what's a dragon? We don't see no dragons. But we get definitive clarity later in verse 9 where this is actually pointing to Satan. The Bible makes it very clear that this dragon is Lucifer, it's our enemy, okay? So why is he red? Think of back, what, back with the red horse. What did the red horse represent? War that was coming. What does war have? Bloodshed, okay? So we know that this dragon imagery, especially him being red, he's a killer. He's a murderer. John chapter 8 even alludes to that. He's been a murderer from the beginning. That's who he is, and he loves to shed blood, and innocent blood at that, all right? Then it says this dragon has seven heads. What are the seven heads? And this is where we're going to have to go back into the book of Daniel, and we'll see this even referenced later with the uh, beast in chapter 13 next week. These heads represent world empires, okay? These seven heads are seven major world empires that existed from the beginning, get this, all the way to the end in the second half of the tribulation so we're having imagery of the whole process of the world who were the seven empires starting with the assyrian empire all right then the egyptian empire the babylonian empire the medo-persian empire okay greek empire then the roman empire which was in power when jesus was born okay and, and giving uh, trouble to the Jews. That's another part of the laborsome pain as the Jews brought forth the Messiah. They were under oppression from the Roman Empire. That's why many of them missed Jesus because they thought Jesus was gonna deliver them from Rome. Jesus came to deliver all humanity from sin, not just them from Rome, okay? That's why they, part of the reason why they missed him. But then the seventh, you say, Brad, well, that's six. And what we're gonna see is out of that last empire, which of course is, is defeated right now, There's going to rise up 
the seventh empire, which is the revived Roman Empire. Okay, so those are the seven heads. All right, this matches the vision that Daniel had in Daniel chapter seven. All right, this is important. It's where we're going to gain some more understanding because he saw four beasts. You said four, you said four, you said seven. Which is it? Okay. The first two he did not reference because his vision was from where he was until the end. So he did not reference the first two, okay, which was the Assyrian and the Egyptian. So his starts with the Babylonian Empire going through the end. But then you say, well, Brad, even four, that ends up at six. Where's the seventh? That's where the ten horns come in. These ten horns represent ten nations, all right, which will arise up out of that last empire, the Roman Empire. This alludes to the revived Roman Empire, which will come to power during the end times, during the tribulation, okay? We're going to read that here in just a second. Because what we're going to see is Daniel had a vision in chapter 7 that a little horn came in, and he plucked three, all right, and then ruled over the rest, okay? So we see that we're going to see this imagery of the Antichrist in this, in this revived Roman Empire. We'll get it again in chapter 13. We'll try to dive into a little more detail because the Antichrist will have these 10 horns representing 10 kings that will rise to power under his rule, okay? But let's read Daniel chapter 7. We're going to read verses 15 through 25 where Daniel gets clarity on the vision that he's received of the four beasts and specifically of the little horn that comes and rules. All right, let's see if this starts to make a little sense for you. Daniel chapter seven, we're gonna read verse 15 through 25. It says, I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body and the visions of my head troubled me. I came near to one of those who stood by and asked him the truth of all this. So he told me and made known to be the interpretation of these things. That always helps when we get some clarity from the Lord himself. Those great beasts, which are four, are four kings which arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast. That's the fourth one, the final one, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its nails of bronze, which devoured broken pieces and trampled the residue with its feet. And the ten horns, ready, that were on its head, and the other horn which came up before which three fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words. So we're talking about a human here, whose appearance was, great, was greater than his fellows. I was watching, and the same horn was making war against the saints. What do, who do we learn is going to make war against the saints in the tribulation? It's going to come after them, Antichrist, okay? And prevailing against them until the ancient of days came. That's Jesus, baby, when he's coming to take him out. And a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High, and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. Thus he said, you ready? The fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from the other, all other kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, trample it, and break it in pieces. The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom. There's the revived Roman Empire, because we know that the Roman Empire is not in power right now. It's a revived Roman Empire in the end times. And another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the first ones and shall subdue three kings. That's the Antichrist. We'll take over three of them. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and law. I'm going to say that again. He shall intend to change times and law. One world government, one world religion, one world currency. Yeah. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time. Where are we clearly pointing to this coming to power then? A time, one, times two. So one plus two is three and half a times, half a year. Last three and a half years of the tribulation. There we go. The Bible's not too hard to understand if you let the Bible interpret itself. 
some clarity right there, all right? So back to our passage in Revelation where we're looking at this red dragon because it continues and it's telling us something here in this history lesson that it's given us first in these first five verses. Verse four says, and his tail drew a third of the stars. Did you catch that? The tail drew a third of the stars and cast them out. All right, see that? Threw them to the earth. What this is pointing to is the first rebellion of Satan. That's why this is history. This isn't happening at the midpoint. All right, this has already happened. Satan has come against God as the first sedition. You know what sedition is? It's the undermining of authority. It's the prideful arrogance of trying to undermine authority and rebellion. That's why God hates it so much. It's the Absalom spirit of coming against authority and and whispering and gossiping behind the scenes to tear down what God has instituted. That is evil. That is of Satan. All right? We're going to talk about that a little more at the end. Okay? So anyway, we see Satan basically convinced a third of the angels to follow him. I want you to think about that. He can convince angels to leave heaven. You think he can deceive you? Come on. All right, let's keep going. So, verse 4, in the end of it, gives Satan's true objective. He wants to keep the Messiah from coming. We already talked about the ways he tried to thwart it from the beginning, but it says here at the end of verse 4 that he was ready to devour her child, all right, this was Jesus, as soon as he was born. How did Satan try to devour Jesus as soon as he was born? You remember? Who did he use? Herod. Remember? Come on, man. Herod made that decree. Say every child two years and under around Bethlehem, dead, gone, trying to kill the Messiah. But you say, hold up, Brad, that was Herod. That wasn't Satan. Revelation just said that was the enemy using my brother Herod. Satan uses people, guys. In their depravity. Herod didn't think he was a Satanist. <laughs> he, won't, he, he didn't start the Satanic temple. <laughs> he just was prideful and arrogant and didn't want anybody else to take his rule from him. He was jealous. And in his depravity, Satan used his depravity and his evil heart to come against the Messiah. See that? Satan can use us in our depravity if we're not careful to complete his his desire on earth that's why it's so important we get rid of pride out of our life arrogance hatred bitterness slander gossip he uses it to destroy churches and we do his work wanted to devour him verse 5 shows the emphasis of Jesus to rule over the kingdom of God, to rule, that he rules the world with a a rod of iron. Did you see that? He's caught up, God on his throne. It's the purpose, it's the end. So there's our history lesson, okay, of things that have happened, so we get the grasp. So John's like, all right, I've told you what's happened, where we're at, what's been going on, now this is where we're at. Okay, verse 6, or this is what's, where we're going to be at in the tribulation at this point in Revelation. That's when it shifts to verse 6, that the woman who was Israel, the Jews, fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should, that they should feed her there 1,260 days. Again, pointing to the last half of the tribulation, when will Israel flee? What did Jesus say in Matthew 24? When will they flee? When the abomination of desolation occurs, when have we shown through the Bible the abomination of desolation occurs? Midpoint of the tribulation. So we see definitively from Jesus himself in Matthew 24, he said, when you see that gets set up in the temple and he set himself up as God, he said, you better run, baby. He said, don't even go back and get your junk. You better get onto the hills because it's coming. Satan's fired up and he's going to use his boy to come after you. You see that? That's right here. It's right here. All right, so we've got that imagery. 
plain and simple, extremely clear, okay? And they're going to remain there for the last half of the tribulation, this portion of Jews that go into the wilderness, probably a place known as Petra. And we'll talk about that here in a second, all right? Let's read the last half of uh, Revelation 12 that we'll um, give to the close. Revelation chapter 12, 7 through 17. It says, And a war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night, has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman, Israel, the Jews, who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So God protects them. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who kept the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. All right, light in there. Let's wrap this up because that's some, that's some good stuff right there. Okay, you're going to see why. So first of all, we see in verse 7 and 9 that a battle happens in heaven. This is key. This battle right here is in the future, at the midpoint of the tribulation. This is not the battle that we already alluded to in the first five verses where Satan was kicked out the first time, okay? Or he was thrown down, he descended, all right? Because what we see very clearly from this passage and from Job is that Satan still has access to heaven right now. Did you know that? I don't mean he walks around in heaven I mean, he has access to the throne and to God. I want you to think about that. That'll twist your theology a little bit. Satan can go to the throne of God. We see that. We see it in Job. It's first pointed out there in chapter 1 and chapter 2. If you remember that account where all the angels were coming to God and it says, Satan, come up there with them. And he come up there. God said, where you been? God knew where he'd been. He said, I've been what? Roaming the earth to and fro, walking through it. 1 Peter 5, 8, looking for someone to devour, right? He went before God. He did it in chapter 1 and chapter 2, so it wasn't just a one-time event. And then if you use the reference that we just read in Revelation chapter 12, he accuses the brethren how often? Day and night. What's that? Air day. <laughs> Air day. He is accusing you and us every day of failure. He tempts us, makes us fall into sin. He, he puts things in front of us and then goes and uses it to accuse us before God every day. Every day. Hmm. So he has access to the throne. That's about to stop. This is the first part of the eviction process of the enemy. I'm going to get you out of my place first. Then I'm going to get you out of my creation. Here you go. Come on. Come on. He's going to get the punk out. All right? Right now he has access, but he's not anymore right here, and it's going to fire him up. All right? This is where we get the imagery, or the uh, definitiveness, rather, that this is the imagery, this dragon of Satan, okay, that he's cast out. And it gives him these, these names, if you will. Obviously, we know the dragon, we talked about that, referring to this killing. That's why he's red and the bloodshed. Then it refers back to he's the serpent of old, pointing back to the reminder of the garden and, de and deceiving Adam and Eve and making them doubt God and everything that he had put before them. Then it says this, the devil, Satan. I want you to know this. Those are not his actual name. His actual name is Lucifer, but the devil, Satan, or what? His nicknames. 
And we know we're familiar with nicknames because somebody might have a nickname, you know, that just reference something uh, characteristic of who you are as a child. Your, name might, your nickname might be Tater Chip, you know what I'm saying? Because you ate a lot of Tater Chips when you was little. I don't know. All right? So Tater Chip's not your name. Your name is whatever. But your nickname's Tater Chip, okay? So Satan has some nicknames. Lucifer has some nicknames. One is the devil, all right? Devil, this word is diabola. And when you go and translate it, it actually means to throw through something, to throw continuously until you break through something. Think that. That's what devil means. How about Satan? It means adversary. It means he hates what God loves, and he loves what God hates. That's why it's so important for us when we're in Christ to let the sanctification process just do its work in our life and, and live for the spirit, not for the flesh. And, and God will do a miraculous work in us and we will start to love what he loves and hate what he hates. Because if we don't, if we continuously love what God hates, then we're no different than the enemy. All right? He's the adversary. He's against God. He's the deceiver of the whole world. Again, we talked about this, how he convinced even the angels to fall from heaven. So you know he's deceiving mankind. That's not even living in the glory of heaven. If he can convince the angels to leave, what can he do with us? Verse 10 and 11 talks about this, and we'll close with this again at the end. It says, he accused us. He accuses us every day. We talked about that before the Lord. Just like in Job. Verse 12. Therefore... And we always talked about this. When you see the word therefore, what do you ask yourself? What's it there for? You got it. Y'all learning. There you go. All right. Because it means because of this. Because of what? Because he was cast out. All right. Then heaven rejoices. Well, you can know why heaven rejoices. We got the enemy out. But then it says, woe to the inhabitants of the earth. Why? Because he's coming. And he's coming angry, he's coming with his wrath, and he's coming to get you for those who are still here. Specifically, first, he's going to turn on the Jews, as we see, when he can't get to them because God's protected and provided for them, and they've fled to the wilderness like they were supposed to. He turns on the rest, the ones who aren't in the wilderness, that are across the other nations, the 144,000, the converted Gentiles, the Christians of the day that have stood for Christ. He's going to turn on them, and that's where there's going to be mass persecution and beheading of the saints when he turns. And again, he's going to use people to do it in their depravity. All right? So that's what it's there for, because Satan knows the time has come. His end is near. He knows. He knows Scripture. He knows at this point he's only got three and a half years left, and he's going to fire it up. Verse 13 and 14 there in that passage we read in chapter 12. We just talked about it. Satan turns on the Jews. How does, how does he turn on the Jews? What do we talk about? First of all, he fires up the Antichrist, right? And that's what sends them into desolation, okay? He infuses the Antichrist. Antichrist goes into the temple, sets himself up as God, demands to be worshiped. They flee to the wilderness, and now it's on. This battle in heaven takes place then. Satan is cast down, and now he's fired up, and he goes after the Jews and God's people. All right? It said here God provided something. First of all, this wilderness is probably Petra. I'm going to move us along because I took a little longer than I wanted to, so I had some pictures of Petra. We could probably put them up real quick. So Petra, this is where many scholars believe that they'll run to. There's this large crevice in, a, in a, a rock wall that's a mile long that leads to a valley of Petra. This area inside this mountainous region, that's probably the region they're going to run to. If we ever can take a trip to Israel, we'll try to go see that, all right? But they can go into that, and this is large area with a lot of city features carved into the mountainside. There's even a stadium carved into the wall in there. Check that out. You see that? You see them holes up at the top? That's for the rich people. That's the box to watch the game. See that up there? All right. But anyway, so it's pretty cool where they're going to be, and God's going to provide for them there and protect them, okay? Right here in verse 15, no, still in verse 13, 14, sorry. It says this. It says, when he saw that he had been cast out, he went to persecute the woman, verse 14, but the woman was given two great wings, two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time 
time and half a time. For the last half of the tribulation, God provides. Many scholars believe that God will provide manna like he did for them the first time. If you remember the Old Testament, he provides food, nourishment, shelter, water, provision, protection, everything they need. The enemy comes at them. All right, and it says this in verse 15 and 16, that it comes with this flood, that the flood spews out of the enemy's mouth, trying to overtake them. Some try to take this literally, but I'm going to tell you, it's not likely a literal interpretation where literal water comes at the Jews, okay? Because think about it, first that means that Satan would control the water. God's protecting them and providing, why would he give Satan the allowance to then control weather. Satan doesn't control weather and floods. God does, okay? So what we're looking at here more than likely is a figurative interpretation. So what this is referencing, this flood that comes out of the enemy toward the Jews is likely armies coming at them. We see that reference in Isaiah chapter eight, verses seven through eight. Again, Brad, where'd you get that? I don't tell you my interpretation, my opinion, guys. I'm always gonna go back to the word of God, all right? There's imagery that we don't have time to read in Isaiah chapter eight, verse seven and eight. You can read that later, where Isaiah is talking about a flood of waters that will come up on the Israelites. And it's not talking about a flood of the Euphrates. It's talking about specifically the flood of the Assyrian army that will be pouring out like a flood on God's people. So therefore, we have that reference again, very likely here in Revelation chapter 12, that he will again infuse people and armies to come after them to kill them and take them out. Why? Because they chose Jesus and not the Antichrist. That's why. Being persecuted for the faith because they converted. Verse 17, Satan's enraged. He can't get to the Jews and Petra. God's protecting him because it says that the earth opens up and swallows up the flood. Probably earthquakes swallows up those armies. Whoop, they're gone. Almost like when the Egyptians were coming across the Red Sea, the Israelites, and God closed up the water that he had parted, right? He made a way for the Israelites to get through. When the Egyptians came in, whoosh, there you go, and wrapped them up. Same imagery again for God providing for his people in the end times. So he turned on who in verse 17? Who does it say as we come to a close? He went after the offspring. Who are the offspring? Well, other Jews, because Jesus told the Jews in Judea to get to the wilderness. So there's other Jews likely still in other nations that have turned to Christ. So he turns to them. He turns, of course, to the 144,000, the servants of God that were sealed because they've been preaching the gospel and, and people have been coming to Jesus because of their ministry. So you know they're fired up at them. So they're coming after them who are scattered across the nations. But then also who else? Converted Gentiles. Other people who aren't Jews who are still in the earth that, that have, have heard the gospel and come to Christ. He's going to turn on everybody that knows and claims Jesus. Everybody who doesn't have the mark of the beast is going down. All right? And only a few will persevere through the end and, and live as mortals. And we'll see that when we get to the end of Revelation. But there's the attack. He turns on the seed, the offspring of Israel, of Christ. Everybody who had the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. Does the Bible make sense now? And then how we're going to see Satan do that, we're going to see that next week because we're going to see this beast rise up out of the sea, all right? This, this antichrist-led new government, revived Roman empire, this global government that controls everything that's ruled by the antichrist, and he'll go out to conquer, and the mark of the beast comes on the scene. That's how he goes after you. Are you ready? You see it? It's coming together. So now let's end with application. We talked about our enemy today. So I don't want to miss out on exposing him and what he does. What did we see in God's word? First of all, we know the enemy, our enemy, the devil, has been at work since creation of mankind behind the scenes trying to destroy God's word, his creation, and his redemption process. He's been at work since the beginning of time, and he's still at work today. 1 Peter 5.8, you know the passage. Where Peter said, be sober and alert. means be ready. Why? Because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking who he may devour. We just saw that imagery in Job, didn't we? And how he accuses the brethren every day. Think about that imagery. How does Satan come at us like a roaring lion? All right, but he prowls around though like the lion. 
you've ever watched National Geographic, how does a lion attack a deer out in the field? Does he go from a thousand yards away, does he just come running at him so the deer can run off and sprint away and be like, oh, I'm scared. What does he do? Sneaks, baby. Get behind the brush. I'm going to get in the ditch. I'm going to get low. And then every time the deer in the meadow and the sun is eating, he thinks everything's okay, and he sees the brush move a little bit. He, the deer picks his head up, and the, and, the, and the lion stops and freezes. So then the deer's like, okay, maybe I didn't see anything. I'm going to go back to eating. And then he closes ground a little more until he gets close enough to what? That's what Satan does to you and me. You say, oh, man, it's just one sip of alcohol. Oh, man, it's just a little hit of drug. Oh, man, it's just a little sexual relationship outside of marriage. Oh, man, it's just, it's just you fill in the blank. Everybody else is doing it. It's okay. It ain't hurting nobody else. And the whole time the enemy's doing this, coming to get you. Mom and dad, you'd be like, ah, I, I can control it. I do this. And, hey, I'll tell you, whatever mom and dad you do in moderation, your kids will do in excess. And you may think you can control it, but the whole time the enemy's doing this. He's coming to get your kids. Come and get your kids. And you can think everything's all right if you want, or you can heed the word of God and let him sanctify you before the enemy pounces. This John 10, 10 is very clear. Our enemy, the devil, comes to steal, to kill, to destroy. He comes to steal your hopes and dreams. He comes to kill every bit of hope that you have, and he comes to destroy your life. He wants to steal your identity, your purpose, your hope, everything about you. Because he hates what God loves. What does God love? You. He hates you. You're God's creation. He wants to take you out any way he can. And he's deceptive. And he's deceiving. He says he accuses the brethren every day. And I want you to think about this. How, does, how did we see Satan work? The imagery of even controlling the kings. Did you see that? Satan had the seven heads of all the empires. You'd be like, hold up. He had all them empires under control? Those people weren't Satanists. Did you get that? Those people had pride in their heart. Those people were living for themselves, for money, for power, for immorality, for everything. And Satan was using them so much so that he had control. They were his heads. So what does Satan use to accomplish his tasks on earth? People. People with hard hearts. People of, of depraved minds. And yes, he can even use believers that are living in sin. How does he use that, Brad? Tongue. Gossip. Think about this. Look at Proverbs Chapter 6, we're going to read it. I'm going to race through it. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16 through 19. There's six things that God hates, and seven is an abomination to him. I want you to listen to this and see if this sounds like Satan to you. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, heart that devises evil plans, feet that run to evil, false witness, those that sow discord among the brethren. Cause division. You are never more like Satan until you start causing division amongst God's people. If you're hurt, go to the person and get it right. Don't you dare go to somebody else and start talking bad about somebody and tearing them down and slandering them. On the flip side, if somebody ever comes to you and say, hey, let me tell you about so-and-so. I'm hurt. I want to do this. Let me tell you about Pastor Brad. Let me tell you about that. Let me tell you about da, 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 da. You shut them down right there. But like, look, I know, hey, I can see you're hurt. I don't want to hear it. You need to go to that person. And if you can't go to that person, you need to shut up. We need to be that strong. We can't let gossip and lies and slander and evil divisive plans and causing division among the brethren to be any part of our hearts and our lives, because that is the work of Satan. If you got a problem with what I just said, write Jesus. That's his word, not mine. <laughs> Six things God hates, seven is an abomination to him. All the characteristics of the enemy. We can't be part of it. How do we overcome? Verse in Revelation 12 told us, by the blood of the lamb, 
the word of our testimony, don't love our lives until the death. Blood of the lamb, first and foremost, be covered in the blood. There is no salvation outside of Christ. You have to be covered in the blood to be saved. Plain and simple, that is the first power. That's where and only where we have power over the enemy because he is more powerful than us on our own. We have to be covered in the blood of Jesus, first and foremost, to have power. That's salvation and sanctification, being clothed in righteousness. Then it says the word of our testimony. What's that? That's walking by faith and righteousness. Our testimony is not just our past and how God brought us out. Our testimony are the things we're doing now and the decisions and things we'll do in the future to honor and represent Jesus. That's your testimony. And through, yes, the word of God, as we preach the word of God, we saw the two witnesses that were preaching the word of God. We talked about that last week. And people were getting saved. And the whole nation, God used their testimony for the whole nation to turn. It's about putting on the armor, the breastplate of righteousness, so that we can have our testimony of Christ and that our witness is effective. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling is what Paul said so many times in the New Testament. The third one, the final one as we close, love not your lives even into the death. That's what they did, that's what we should do. All of these same things they did to overcome the evil one are the same things we do to overcome the evil one right now and thwart his plan. Love not your lives unto the death. What does that mean? That means it's not about me and it's not about you, baby. We gotta deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Jesus. If anyone would come after me, Jesus said, they must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. That's again, that's not my word, that's Jesus. You can argue with him about what an authentic follower of Christ should look like. It's one who denies themselves, doesn't live for themselves, has an eternal mindset, and doesn't even love their own life, even if it means costing their life for the cause of Christ. Lord, I wonder if we could do that. Because that's how we overcome. That's how we stand in victory right now over an enemy that's accusing you every single day. Have you surrendered to Jesus like that? Have you put on that breastplate of righteousness through his spirit to walk by the spirit and not by the flesh? Have you decided to follow Jesus and deny yourself no matter the cost? Let's close our eyes and bow our heads. We wrap up. And I wonder if there's anybody in here. You might say, Brad, I need to be covered in the blood of Jesus. I've never surrendered my life like you've just talked about right there. And I wanna do that today. I wanna commit my life to Christ. I wanna surrender all of me to all of him. I'm gonna repent, I'm gonna have a change of mind about who he is and about his word and about what my sin looks like. I'm gonna have a change of mind through his spirit today that God has given me. It's not of me, it's God inspired. And that change of mind I know and trust will lead to a change of heart, which will eventually lead to a change of actions in my life, that's sanctification. It's God's will that all are sanctified. If that's you today, you need to come to Jesus like that right now. I want you to pray a prayer from your heart to God's heart and do business with the Lord. Or if you're here and you say, Brad, I've come to Christ like that before, and there was a time I was on fire and and, and serving him and living for him, but but lately, man, that fire's grown dim, and I've I've walked away, and man, I've I've been deceived. I've been living for myself, things of this world. I need to get back on fire for Jesus. I'm gonna ask you to do the same business with God, pray the same prayer, come run into the cross and do business with him right now. So to receive him for the first time or to rededicate your life, just say to God, dear God, I admit to you that I've messed up, that I'm a sinner and I'm in need of you, my savior. Thank you for sending Jesus, your only son, the spotless lamb to die on the cross that his body was broken and his blood was shed that I could be forgiven. And I know by his wounds I'm healed. And Lord, thank you for raising him from the grave three days later, proving that he is God. And he stands in all victory over hell, death, and the grave. And Lord, I wanna claim that same victory right now in my life, Lord, I need it. And my commitment to you from this day forward is every step I take and every breath I make will only be for you and your glory alone. I deny myself, I take up my cross, and I follow you today. Amen, if that's you and you meant business with God, 
you did that for the first time or you rededicated your life and come running back to him, I want you to boldly and unashamed right now, no one looking around, just raise your hand and say, Brad, I prayed that prayer. I need you to pray for me. God's doing a work in my heart and my life right now. Amen. If I don't see you, God does. Amen, church. These people are still doing business with the Lord. Can we give him a big round of applause? He deserves it. He is faithful. He is holy. And he is victorious. And he's given us the opportunity now to be victorious with him. So let's go. Let's go take this word, this message of how we overcome, and let's go defeat him ourselves. Let's be covered in the blood of Jesus. Let's walk in the manner worthy of our calling so we have a testimony of righteousness with that breastplate on, that other people can see Jesus in us, that we can be salt of the earth like God commanded us to be. And then that also that we can deny ourselves take up our cross and follow him. And we not even love our lives even into the death. And we will have victory over an enemy that wants to take you out. There you go. Take it out. Let's go make an impact for Jesus this week. We'll see you next Sunday as we learn about the beast and the other players in the scorebook that come on the scene in the tribulation. Thanks again for joining us today. The Lord is truly doing an amazing work and we would love for you to be a part of it. Check out the show notes for links to our website and social media pages. Or if you're ever in the Lynchburg or Forest, Virginia area, please come on by and join us in making an impact for Christ. Christ.